It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. Coming up on episode number 84 of the Night Talker at 10:45, where are we at in society? A guy spent $14,000 to look exactly like a border collie. Boy, does he. At 10.15, it is the first of my two-segment chat with Pete Nakos, who covers the business of college sports for On3.com. And coming up in seconds, the Texas Rangers are going all in this season. What in the world is going on with the Colts and Jonathan Taylor? I am your host, Trey Elling. You can give me a follow on Twitter at CourtesyWave. And do the same for ESPN Austin at 1027 ESPN. Well, as you know, if you listen to this show with any sort of regularity, it is rare that we talk about Major League Baseball at all this time of year, much less lead the show off with it. But I do think it is worth noting what is going on in the AL West right now. Involving the two major league teams in this state, the Texas Rangers and the Houston Astros. Coming out of this weekend's games that saw the Rangers get swept in San Diego and the Astros facing off a handful of times with the Tampa Bay Rays, the Rangers now hold a one-game lead in the AL West over the surging Houston Astros. They have been gaining ground since, let's say, a couple weeks before the All-Star break. And here we are with these two teams nearly knotted up record-wise with a little bit less than 60 games to play. The Rangers are at 60 and 46 now. Astros are at 59 and 47. And they do still play 162 on the season as of right now. They won't listen to me when I suggest that they scale it back to 100 regular season games, maybe expand the playoffs that much more. So in the meantime, yes, still 162. And of course, over the course of 162 games, which now starts in late March for some teams, goes all the way into early October. So we are talking a six-month regular season. Injuries are going to be a part of that equation. Certainly injuries to the guys that you're reliant on to pitch starters or relievers innings. And the Astros and Rangers have dealt with their fair share of injuries to both hurlers and position players this year. The Rangers are no exception here. They have been bit hard by the injury bug, especially with some of their best players. Of course, they lost... Potential ace Jacob deGrom much earlier in the year to an arm injury. Now Nathan Ivaldi, who has been the best pitcher amongst the starters this season, is having to miss some time because his velocity was way down, which unfortunately for Rangers fans oftentimes is a precursor to an elbow or shoulder injury that requires season-ending surgery. They've also been without their best hitter, Corey Seager, on a few different occasions this year. Seeger is right now missing time. Jonah Haim looks like he may be out for the year. They're all-star catcher. But they are still good enough as a roster to score runs, in part because they've done a great job with free agency signings and also developing guys in their minor league system, which is now amongst the healthiest in all of baseball. But you can't get past a lack of healthy, capable arms. 
in your rotation or your bullpen. And the Rangers made some moves over the weekend to address both. They went out and got former Cy Young winner Max Scherzer, who has struggled a little bit with the New York Mets this year. One of his worst seasons statistically in a long time. He is 39 years old, so is it an aberration or is it just what his body is allowing him to do at this point? Max Scherzer has pitched a lot of important innings in the regular and postseason and adds a much-needed veteran presence to this roster. And then they went out and got a guy yesterday from the St. Louis Cardinals who has been better as a starting pitcher this year. That would be lefty Jordan Montgomery, whose ERA is right around three and a half right now and has been great and I think is really going to help bolster this starting rotation. They had a reliever in that Jordan Montgomery deal, and they give up some decent prospects in both cases, although less in the Scherzer example, for whatever that's worth. Even though Jordan Montgomery is a free agent after this year, they had to fork over a little bit more to give to get him, and some would argue that they made a bad deal in the process, but if you're trying to win now, that's what you have to do. Unfortunately, they're also not having to pay a big chunk of the massive amount still due to Max Scherzer over the next couple of years while getting Max Scherzer to opt in for 2024, ensuring that the Rangers get him for at least one more year. The Astros insist that they're not in the market for a starting pitcher, but really, who is not in some sort of market for starting pitching? Maybe you're not willing to pay too much. But you can always look to upgrade that fifth starting spot, if nothing else. But the Astros went out and helped to shore up their bullpen. Making a trade with the Chicago White Sox, which are all of a sudden fire sailing. Going getting veteran reliever Kendall Graveman. So they're trying to make sure that their arms are as good as humanly possible for the stretch run in this baseball season. That stretch run being two more months and then... What Astros fans hope is also another fruitful postseason run, too. So it'll be interesting to keep track of this all the way through tomorrow at, I believe, 5 p.m. Central Time when the trade deadline hits for Major League Baseball teams. I don't know what else the Rangers could possibly do right now. They went out and got Aroldis Chapman from the Kansas City Royals, what, about a month ago? That has paid off so far. And now they add two more starting arms to really help them get through what has been a slumping stretch for them. Their worst stretch of baseball all year long, which has extended for about a month at this point. They'll eventually get Seager back. Outside chance they get uh, Jonah Heim back, but I don't think that's going to happen. Does Eovaldi come back healthy, throwing like he was pre that downtick in velocity? We'll see. But even if that doesn't happen, you feel better about that rotation going forward. On the NFL side of things, I was amongst those who thought Jonathan Taylor was going to have a huge 2022. Really set things up nicely with his 2021 season. It looked like that Colts offensive line was going to continue to get better, but they suffered injuries. Jonathan Taylor suffered an injury, and it was just a bad year overall for the Colts which I think started with them going out and getting Matt Ryan as their starting quarterback the previous offseason. That really was setting them up for failure. And sure enough, Matt Ryan was a shell of himself, although you could also argue he was exactly what they signed to get, considering his last couple seasons with the Falcons. Well, Jonathan Taylor is still potentially one of the biggest stars at a disrespected position in the NFL, he being a running back. 
with big play potential pretty much any time he touches the ball, and a track record that speaks to him not necessarily suffering another major injury this year. He stayed really healthy throughout his time at Wisconsin in his first couple of years in Indy before last year's uncert, uh, unfortunate turn of events for Colt fans. Well, now Jonathan Taylor has spoken out about the position being slided and then do a little bit more respect, which has turned into a back and forth with Colts owner Jim Ursay, who quite frankly has said some ridiculous things as it pertains to Jonathan Taylor and his value to that franchise. So Jonathan Taylor continues to push back. There was a report that came out via ESPN earlier that Jonathan Taylor reported back pain heading into training camp, and so the Colts are considering putting him on a physically unable to perform list. Jonathan Taylor has since refuted that on Twitter, and this is just a mess. And now has Jonathan Taylor demanding a trade with the Colts saying, no, sorry, dude, we're not trading you. You're stuck on this roster. And oh, by the way, Zach Moss, who is Jonathan Taylor's backup that the Colts snagged from the Buffalo Bills last year, he's now out four to six weeks with an injury. He broke his arm in training camp, so he's done. So the Colts are in a bad spot in terms of who they have at running back if Jonathan Taylor is going to continue to hold out. Those options are Evan Hull, who is a rookie, Jake Funk, who I've never heard of before, and then Deion Jackson, too. So good luck with that one, Colts fans. All right, coming up, it is the first of a two-segment chat with Pete Nakos. He covers the business of college sports for On3.com. We're going to talk NIL, transfer portal, college football realignment, and more. Proving good things do happen on the radio after 10 p.m. It's the Night Talker with Trey Allen. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. Back here on a Monday edition of the Night Talker, and we return to the hotline now to welcome a guy to the show who I believe is appearing on this program for the third time. Unfortunately for him, or maybe fortunately for him, that he is now considered a friend of the show. It is Pete Nakos, who covers the business of college sports for On3.com. Pete, thank you as always. How are you doing today? I'm good, man. Thank you so much for having me on. Yes, I guess... This is number three, so I'm officially a friend of uh, a friend of the show. For better or worse, Pete, uh, you are uh, you are now linked to us going forward. So I wanted to catch up with you after the major conference media days are over with, which with the Big Ten and ACC completing their thing last week. That is now the case, and you yourself were actually at Big Ten Media Day, so we'll certainly start there, but on three was at all of these different media days, including Big 12 Media Days, which I attended this year and was broadcasting from, to really ask some relevant and maybe obvious questions to you and I about the future of college sports as it pertains to NIL, as it pertains to the transfer portal, and more, so Let's start in Indianapolis at Big Ten Media Days, which you are a part of. By the way, savvy move yeah. by Brett Yormark to overshadow Big Ten Media Days by getting the news out there that Colorado was going to be joining their conference starting next year. But what were you able to gather from the people that you spoke with at Big Ten Media Days regarding NIL, the transfer portal, federal legislation, anything else that was top of mind for you as you covered that event? Yeah, I mean, I talked to quite a few people up in Indianapolis uh, last week. And, um, obviously the, there's a want for federal legislation and this so-called plan B from the NCAA. And, um, the NCAA is obviously meeting again this week to discuss some options, but it doesn't really sound like, um, anything that they choose to, to roll with, whether it be a, 
agent registry or deal database or is really going to solve any of the problems that that college sports uh, claims to now have with the NIL era. Um, So I think a lot of my takeaways were just, number one, uh, coaches are still dealing with the pay-to-play and recruiting inducements on the daily, um, and that hasn't changed. And number two, I would just say that um, I know we were all in Indy for Big Ten media days, but man, real realignment really just dominated the headlines and, and, and the talk of uh, the upcoming college football season. Now that Colorado will officially be joining the Big 12 starting next season, we have seen reports coming out that the Big Ten is strongly considering adding some of those other valuable Pac-12 schools to the fray and maybe even considering trying to poach some ACC schools while we're at it. Do you believe those uh, those reports right now, or do you think that's just a whole lot of rumor-mongering? Yeah, I sat down with the, the commissioner of the conference, Tony Petiti, last week and chatted with him for 20 minutes, and, and realignment really just doesn't seem to be the focus for the league right now. Mm. Um, all that said, I mean, would I be surprised if they made a move? No, but all the signs that um, I read last week say they're not really on track for this, and um, – I think that if, if if Kevin Warren was still the commissioner, we could be looking at a situation where I think Kevin Warren would have gone out and had an Oregon, Washington, Cal, and maybe even Sanford or Notre Dame by now. Um, but the Big Ten presidents and chancellors have kind of uh, pointed out that they don't want to do that. And I, I think Tony Petiti is just still a little too new on the job for him to make a move like that. Um, so I think we're going to have to wait and see when it comes to Big Ten realignment. I think it really ends up – if the Big Ten goes and adds another school or two or, or whatever they choose to do, it's really going to be predicated on whatever the Big 12 does, right? Does Brett Yormark go and add all of the corner schools, and, and then all of a sudden, I mean, then the Pac-12 is done, or do they need to go get a, a UConn or an SMU because the Pac-12 gets San Diego State and rallies for their TV contract. I don't have the answer to that. I think what the Pac-12 and Big 12 does will will decide what the Big Ten does. Yeah, I feel like if the Big Ten were to add more prestigious programs, and I think Oregon is maybe the most valuable, at least on the uh, West Coast side of things, of what you could bring in from the Pac-12 or otherwise, but I feel like if they add two or three more schools, they're going to have to consider... Uh, cutting schools from the bottom too, because at that point you're you're starting to get into a really wi- weird number where you almost have enough schools to make make two different conferences. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, that's that's a good point. I haven't thought about it like that. But the other thing to point out um, is right their TV deal doesn't change if they add a school or not. So oh, I think a lot of the Big Ten schools don't want to go out and add anyone uh, until their their contract expires. Uh, their new one expires, I should say. Um, and obviously just trying to figure out what adding Oregon and Washington would, would do to the next TV contract would make it worthwhile. But I would think that a lot of the schools in the Big Ten right now don't want to lose out on those dollars for the time being. So in retrospect, how brilliant of a move was it for the Big 12 to ensure that their future media rights deal does include that same amount being given to new member institutions, considering that even the Big Ten didn't have the foresight to uh, set something in motion along those lines. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a smart move, definitely, by uh, the Big 12. It was also a very smart move by, I guess, ESPN and Fox to, to make sure that 
there's almost a carrot there for Brett Yormark to go chase. But um, all that said, I mean, the, what what Brett Yormark has been able to do since he's taken the job, since he's acquired the Big 12 Open for business, and and then going out there and getting the the group of five schools that he did, but um, then coming through with Colorado, a power five. So, I mean, it's pretty remarkable what he's done. And I know at times people have um, kind of like shot down some of his innovative ideas, right? Like uh, they're doing basketball at Rucker Park. They had like Shaq DJ the Big 12 basketball tournament. Like there's a few things and people are kind of like, what the heck are they doing? Um, but I think that they, they've really figured it out. And your mark has obviously de- delivered when it comes to conference realignment. Look, people who accomplish big things also dream big, and they'll try things out, too. And anybody who is critical of the uh, Rucker Park idea, I think that's a fantastic idea. Maybe having Shaq DJ uh, the Big 12 basketball tournament is a bit of a stretch, but people who dream big also accomplish big things. And I think Brett Yormark has proven in a little bit more than a year now that he may be the second best conference commissioner in all of college sports after Greg Sankey in the SEC. But Greg Sankey's also playing with a bit of a loaded deck because he is in charge of the SEC after all. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point. And um, I, I, the SEC is still valuable right now. Like I, the only thing that would make sense for, for them from what I've heard is maybe you go get like a Florida State or Clemson, but I, I, that's not close to happening. And I don't think that there's a good chance that ever happens, but um, there's just almost like no need for the SEC to make a move at the moment. Yeah, I think the, the Florida State might make sense for them. Clemson might also make sense. Maybe a Notre Dame, but Notre Dame's not going to do anything as long as they keep getting their sweetheart deal to remain independent from M- NBC. So after that, it really does feel like forced moves if the SEC were to add anybody. And just like with the Big Ten, because you're at what seems like a pretty good number once Texas and Oklahoma join the conference, it almost does seem like you would need to cut someone from the bottom if you were to add another school or two, whether that's a a South Carolina or a Kentucky or a Vanderbilt. I'm not totally sure, but it would take something that makes a ridiculous amount of sense, I think, for the SEC to add anybody else going forward. Yeah, and, and to be clear, I don't see any of these conferences actually cutting schools at the bottom. Right. Um, but I, I understand what you're saying, but I think when it comes to TV contracts, some of these brands are just still so recognized and have rich tradition that I don't, I don't think any of these conferences would, would cut a school out. So in terms of the conference media days that you were not a part of, but following along with the coverage being provided by your colleagues at on3.com, were, were there anybody, was there anybody else or any other answers that uh, really stick out in your mind uh, with regards to NIL, the transfer portal, federal legislation, et cetera? Yeah, I'd say most of these conference commissioners really stuck with the party line and, and, and pounded the table for congressional legislation, which wasn't a surprise. Uh, but I think people would have loved to see Greg Sankey come out right at day one at SEC Media Days and kind of laid out a framework for how the SEC and, and college football specifically should kind of move forward with the sport and, and NIL. And um, I think that was a hope, obviously. I, I don't know if that was an expectation, though. And then he kind of came out and talked about his work with Charlie Baker and, and the need for congressional legislation. And I just think um, that's kind of where we're at right now when it, when it comes to these things is a lot of, a lot of stakeholders believe in the federal mandate. Um, I don't know if we're ever going to see one happen. Um, that there, there's a lot of activity. I don't know if any, we'll get a result anytime soon. 
Um, but yeah, I think that's that was the other really big resounding takeaway. I was maybe not surprised, but it was interesting to hear at Big 12 Media Days and talking with people about the NCAA and how it really has lost everybody's trust with regards to guardrails or making sure the policies that are in place are being forced in a fair manner to really hear people talk about, yes, that is true. The NCAA has lost a lot of credibility, but we really do believe in Charlie Baker. We like what he's doing so far, and we think that he has a real potential to turn things around for that organization. Is that how you see it as well right now, Pete? Yeah, I think there's a lot of belief in Charlie Baker, and I think that um, maybe more so than the last NCAA administration, uh, there's there's really a push uh, to get some things done, and I think a lot of people are encouraged by that. Um, and I think that, right, he's the former governor of Massachusetts. He does have some political power and prowess, and I think people are really encouraged by what he's been able to do in lobbying efforts in D.C. Um, and that's just something that was not in Mark Emmert's wheelhouse, uh, per se. And, and I think for some uh, uh, getting something done on Capitol Hill has has been a want for many years, and, and Charlie Baker appears to be the person who uh, is getting the conversation started. I don't want to jump uh, too far ahead and say that he can get something done yet, but he's definitely gotten the car- conversation started. And we will talk a little bit more about the newest proposed federal legislation that you guys reported on last week has bipartisan support. We'll get into the details, why it may or may not work. I am speaking with Pete Nakos. He covers the business of college sports for On3. Check out his work, On3.com. Does a great job over there. Coming up more with Pete on the other side. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. Back with Pete Nakos. Covers the business of college sports for On3 and On3.com. And Pete, heading into the commercial break, I previewed that we would talk a little bit about the most recent bipartisan legislation that was introduced in Congress last week. Now, this is something that uh, will not be decided upon for at least a couple of months if it does make it that far. But what separates this most recent piece of legislation from the others that is that have existed up to this point? Yeah, so there was the, the bipartisan bill from uh, the Senators Blumenthal, Booker, and Moran two weeks ago um, that had some in- encouragement um, across the board. And then last week, um, we had another bill drop, and that came from, um, uh, speaking of the names, uh, the Connecticut. Joe, Joe Manchin uh, and uh, Murray, I believe. Tom, Tommy Tuberville was the other guy. Well, oh yes, okay. I apologize. There was multiple bipartisan last week, so uh, that's that's where I lost you there for a second. So gotcha. you had um, the senators uh, Tuberville and uh, Manchin also released a bipartisan bill last week, um, and in that uh, it would it would mean uh, quite a few things. It, it would deliver on a few of Charlie Baker's requests. It would uh, give state preemption. Um, and it would uh, actually really like kind of get in the weeds in college athletics too. Um, like an athlete wouldn't be allowed to transfer in their first three years of eligibility unless their coach or primary assistant coach left. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I think it's all a start. And then the third bipartisan bill that I was thinking about um, that, that I kind of got 
held up on. And, and that one actually isn't bipartisan. It's just two Democrats. It's the, the U.S. Senator Chris Murphy and Congresswoman Lori Tran. Uh, Murphy's from Connecticut and Tran's from Massachusetts. And um, they reintroduced the College Athletic Economic Freedom Act. Um, and, and the big one on that is if that bill were to ever pass and become law, international athletes would be able to earn NIL compensation, something that they can't do right now because of their visa status. Mm. Uh, so we're in a really interesting state right now when it comes to all these congressional bills. And um, Congress is now on recess for the next month. So I think we're really not going to know where any of them stand or if there's any momentum until September and obviously going to continue talking to sources and things, but I think uh, that the next month we're not going to hear a lot, obviously because of this recess. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about the mansion tupper bill bill, because you just mentioned that it suggests that college athletes sign a contract essentially that keeps them from being able to transfer from one school to another for the first three years that they are at that initial institution unless there is a special circumstance. That includes head coach or position coach leaving. Do you think three is the right number if they were to decide on something like that? Or if not, what is the right number there? Yeah, I I mean, I'm of the opinion there's not a right number. I think that the minute you start telling athletes how and when they can transfer, now we're talking about contracts almost, and um, it's one thing to have a transfer waiver and it's another to um, maybe have like the one-time transfer rule. And I think that's pretty lenient, but if you're, you're telling an athlete they can't transfer for three years, now we're talking about, um, I mean, that sounds more of like an employee agreement than anything else. The one other thing I wanted to add was um, the mansion Tupperville bill goes into this really interesting situation where boosters and collectives, would be forced to be like affiliated with a school um, in a much more official way than we have right now. And and, um, the bill would call for the NCAA to have the power to basically strip collectives uh, of that official title. Um, And by then then doing so, it wouldn't allow a collective to, to sign athletes from that school. So this is where it gets hilarious to me because you are asking these uh, college athletes to sign three-year deals, which I'm assuming they can still transfer from one school to another. It's just they're going to have to sit out a year if they choose to do so before that three years is up. You're also... You're also certifying these collectives and making sure they are an official part of the university. So three-year deals, the organizations that they're dealing with are a part of the school or athletics department, but you're also still insisting that these college athletes aren't considered university employees. And look, while I get that that makes sense for maybe every sport outside of college football, I guess you have an argument for men's and women's basketball and maybe baseball too, to a lesser degree. Like, how can you insist that somebody signs a three-year deal and is making money through official channels connected to the university but still insist that there's no employment agreement there? Those two things seem too contradictory to ever exist together. They are. They are, and it's one of the big reasons why there's some arguments playing out in the court right now, right? You have the National uh, Labor Relations Board um, at USC, and then you have Johnson versus NCAA, and um, it, it, I guess it isn't surprising that the NCAA is trying to get this employee 
um, battle figured out in the federal law uh, before the courts can can have their final say. So I uh, spoke with several people at Big 12 Media Days who brought up the idea of having these athletes sign multi-year contracts. And so my follow-up question was, well, is it reasonable to believe that these college athletes who are signing multi-year deals are going to be considered university employees at some point? And there was one of, there, there were one of two responses that occurred as a result of this. If it was a coach that I was talking to about this, they would immediately go with, well, that question's above my pay grade, which is not a surprising deflection, but a deflection nonetheless. But when I asked athletics directors specifically about that, their response was always, well, you can't do that because if you do that, then there's more liability on the table and more money potentially due, and that's going to affect our ability to finance all of these other sports as well. So my question for you, because you understand the ins and outs a little uh, of this a little bit better than I do, and you're not coming from the biased perspective of an athletics director, is that are a lot of these programs, especially these elite level college football programs, making enough to where it would still make sense to have these guys considered employees while also still financing all the other sports that exist on campus too? Yeah. Well, well, first, that's a, that's a great question. Um, but number two, I don't, I don't know if I have all the info in front of me to make that, that decision right now. I think that the one, one way uh, people are talking about it, though, is um, you could have athletes classified as employees and the, the revenue that they would be able to get a share of would come from TV contracts. Um, but still that would, that would definitely have an impact on the, the revenue that an athletic department brings in. And, um, the one thing I'll point out real quick is there's this uh, association called the collective association. It's made up of seven NIL entities across mm. the country and they are, uh, they're lobbying for a revenue sharing model that would call for the collectives to be in charge of dispersing television revenue to athletes without classifying the athletes as employees. Um, I think the reality is I, I just don't think athletes want to be employees, right? Like I think once you explain to an athlete, what comes with being an employee, like, I mean, it's a lot. Um, right. And, and then even more questions arise of, okay. Um, can you fire an athlete? Can you, um, if you're only going to pay him for 40 hours a week, how many times a week can you practice things like that? I think that, trying to classify an athlete as a, as an employee opens up so many doors. And I think athletes are also realizing that that's something they might not just want to do right now. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting conversation because right now, you know, we, we use the term free for all quite a bit and wild, wild West with uh, how things are going with NIL. But a lot of these guys may be dealing with hard lessons pretty soon as it pertains to actually paying taxes on the money that you made. Like if you don't have a good financial manager, in your corner, you may not know any better. You're just assuming that the money that you're bringing in is is your money to do with what you will. But um, that that is not the reality for anybody. And um, yeah. I do I do wonder if legalizing this process a little bit more will help those guys deal with what is potentially a a, a really bad financial situation if they fall a couple years behind on something like that too. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that. Um this is definitely a topic that needs a definitive answer. Um, and it isn't easy when you have the NCAA that's obviously trying to make the case for why athletes shouldn't be employees. And then you have athletes who just don't really have a voice at the table right now when it comes to the, the uh, employee uh, conversation. 
So I feel like I ask some version of this question every time you and I speak now, Pete, but I have to ask it again because the Pac-12, not only Friday news dumped their media days this year, they were without Deion Sanders, which would have been one of the bigger voices at media days. And on top of that, I'm guessing they released the news a week or so beforehand that there would not be a media rights deal announced at Pac-12 Media Days, which all throughout the summer we have been told something would be decided officially on that front. So my question for you this time, Pete, based on these things, is this time next year is the Pac-12 an afterthought as it pertains to major college football? It's a question... I'm going to go with no. I think I think they're going to figure it out, and I think they're going to go at San Diego State, and I think it's going to be the Pac-12's punch back at the Big 12, and the Big 12 is going to need to go find figure out who to add, and, and they're not going to be able to take anyone um, from uh, the the Pac-12. So I think the Pac-12 is still standing. Um, at the same time, I don't know, man. It's tough, but I want to. I want to. I, I want the Pac-12 to survive. I think it'd be really cool to see Oregon and Washington still part of the Pac-12. But who knows, man? It, it's college football as we know it was kind of put on a on a time clock the minute Oklahoma and Texas made the move to the SEC. Very well put. He is Pete Nakos. He covers the business of college sports for On3 and On3.com, and occasionally he's nice enough to join these airways to talk about those things. Pete, thank you as always for the time. Always a pleasure. You bet. Have a great day, man. Coming up in Where We At in Society, a guy spent $14,000 to look exactly like Lassie, and boy does he. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. Final segment of tonight's show means it's time for... Where are we at in society today? That's right. It is your nightly look at stories that show we as a people are headed in the wrong direction. Very occasionally, I will bring you a story that provides a sense of optimism that has us all saying to ourselves, Hey, maybe we as a people are getting something right. Perhaps all is not lost. But sadly, and you know this is always the case on Monday, tonight is not that night. It's because we've had a full weekend of humans proving themselves too stupid to figure it out when it's all said and done. And this week, we begin in Japan, where a guy, and of course this is going to be a guy because, sorry guys, women don't tend to be this stupid. A guy has spent more than $10,000 to make himself look like a collie, a dog, like the Lassie dog. The Conine cosplayer, because that's what this is apparently, because he's paying for this human-sized suit that Looking at the pictures of this guy walking around with his quote-unquote human owner, it looks exactly like a Lassie dog. He first made headlines several years ago when he dropped $14,000 on a hyper-realistic collie suit so he could realize his lifelong dream of becoming man's best friend. That's right, it's a lifelong dream of this guy to be a dog. 
We're in the era of you wishing something enough to where you actually then get to be that, whether it be a gender or race or whatever else. This guy wanted to be a dog, and now he has a $14,000 dog suit to allow him to walk like a dog in public, which is what he did last week. He took his first ever walk in public after training for years and making sure that he is moving like a dog in this suit. And he's become a sensation on YouTube. Perhaps unshockingly to anybody who sees the value in this sort of person seeking out attention like this. He posts under, quote, I want to be an animal and uploading videos of himself masquerading as a dog. The clip show, I said taco earlier, I believe it's toco, gussied up in the full dog suit as he rolls over, plays fetch, and engages in other supernaturalistic canine impersonations. In his most viral video to date, which has already been seen by around 4 million people, Toko actually went out in public in his costume for this first time ever for a sort of public debut. He is parading around busy streets, performing tricks, and interacting with other dogs as astonished onlookers are watching in awe. Now, Toko admitted afterwards that he was nervous and scared to be venturing out in public like this because up to this point, all of these YouTube videos have been shot in the privacy of his own home or perhaps other people's homes too. You're not going to be surprised by this aspect of things. He is really hearing from it from other people on social media, many of whom took to Twitter to shame him. One person said, men will literally spend $20,000 to transform into a border collie instead of going to therapy. Another one tweeted out, a Japanese man spent over 20K for this border collie costume. You cannot convince me this isn't some weird sex thing. Now, Toko doesn't really have time for the haters. He does think he's a dog after all. From Toko, quote, I'm just sad that people can think that. I love animals and enjoy play acting like a collie. This is my hobby, so I will carry on. It makes me happy and other people happy too. He insists, Toko insists that this is not a fetish, but a way of life for him. Do you remember your dreams from when you were little? You wanted to be a hero or a wizard. I remember writing in my grade school graduation book that I wanted to be a dog and walk outside. Yeah, but some people move on from childlike dreams. At one point, my daughter wanted to be a strawberry. At another point, my son wanted to be a dinosaur, Toko. Thankfully, a few years later, they've moved on to new dreams. Dreams that don't require them to drop tens of thousands of dollars on an outfit to satisfy these childlike urges. So the company that made this dog suit, and again, you can find pictures online, it is eerie 
how much like a border collie this guy looks wearing this suit walking around. The company that made this suit, though, is called Zepit. They typically make costumes for TV commercials and films. And they did charge Toko $14,000 plus for this realistic collie costume. Now, you may be asking, well, Toko, if you wanted to be a dog when you were a kid, did you want to be a border collie? Not necessarily. There was some tact used here by Toko to choose border collie over, say, I don't know, German Shepherd, Shih Tzu, Bulldog. He decided on the collie costume because its long hair can, quote, mislead the human figure. And then he does also say after the fact that border collies are his favorite dog, too. I don't know if I believe that, Toko. I think this is much more about the fur than it is a border collie being your favorite dog. The costume itself took 40 days and numerous revisions to create. Toko initially came out of the kennel, according to this New York Post article, very well put, New York Post, in April of 2022, by posting a video of himself in the dog costume, a video that amassed more than 3 million views. So clearly this is paying off for Toko. If he's posting on YouTube and getting 3 million views, I think he's making enough in ad revenue to cover the cost of the dog outfit. He exclaims in the initial video, my dream of becoming an animal came true in in this way. So Toko, you might assume that he's just proud to be who he is and show his real-life identity in public, not the case, though. He actually goes to great lengths to conceal, let's call it what it is, a fetish toko, even though you claim otherwise. He conceals this from his family, friends, and colleagues, even using a pseudonym in the aforementioned videos. I haven't told anyone about my transformation into a dog, he said. I'm still afraid that my friends will find my hobby bizarre. You don't have to be afraid about that one, Toko. They will definitely find it bizarre. But if they're your real friends, they'll support you, I guess. Maybe hold on to the leash as you're going out for a walk. Perhaps throw a chucket ball for you to go get and come back. You are a border collie after all. So one needs to spend hours to burn the energy off that a border collie maintains. Other... Why is the border collie will just chew everything up in the house? That's how it goes. And that's how we assume it's going to go with you too, Toko. All right, one more story. And where are we at today before we hit the end of the 10 o'clock hour? We've all heard stories of grandma or grandpa being scammed out of the life savings by some online predator. Perhaps it's a Nigerian prince or a telemarketer calling in the name of somebody else, suggesting that a friend or family member is in dire straits and needs their immediate financial assistance. But this old woman losing her life savings may take the cake. A grandma is horrified after learning that her life savings was eaten by termites. 
This happened to an old lady in Malaysia who posted on Facebook detailing her unfortunate route to rock bottom. Actually, it was her grandson who uploaded this story to Facebook. The unnamed senior had reportedly squirreled away around $8,700 in a box for a pilgrimage to Mecca in 2024. But her dreams of a trip to the Holy Land were soon dashed by termites. When she tried accessing the nearly $9,000, she saw that the banknotes had been shooed to shred by termites. There were also photos of the mangled greenbacks, which had been sliced into leaf-like shapes. The grandson even tried to salvage the situation by sending half of the pillaged bills to the Central Bank of Malaysia with the hope of getting them replaced, but the other half were beyond salvaging. So at most, this woman is looking at $4,500. That's her life savings, too. Now, it's Malaysia, so $9,000 goes much further than it does here in the U.S., but really sad story for Grandma that she... Maybe without that life savings, thanks to some termites. Thanks to you for hanging out tonight. Thanks also to Pete Nakos for hopping on to talk NIL and more from On3.com. We'll be back tomorrow at 10. In the meantime, have yourself a great rest of the evening and sweet dreams. It's the Night Talker with Trey Ellings.